1: But what is it that makes you somehow different than anyone I've ever met? And the Buddha smiled and
2: said, ah, he said, I'm awake. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. indeed.com slash charm terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed this is the art of charm learn everything you need to
0: know to crush it in business love and life the art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise and packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Make sure to stay up to date with everything going on here and get some great content and free products and books that we don't or can't share on the show by signing up for the newsletter at theartofcharm.com. This show is about you. We're here to help you become the best you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know where to begin or you want to find out more about what we teach here at the Art of Charm live programs in Los Angeles, You can go to the website and we'll email you a starter kit of all the top podcasts here on The Art of Charm. We'll also send you the fundamentals like body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, dating, attraction, business networking and negotiation, relationship management and more, pretty much all the stuff we wish we'd learned and mastered years ago. We have our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. We have guys from all over the world on a regular basis. Details on that at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. Give us a call or email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you here in Los Angeles. Today, we're talking with Dan Millman, author of The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. I'm sure many of you have heard of this. He's also written The Warrior Athlete, Sacred Journey of the Peaceful Warrior, Secret of the Peaceful Warrior. In addition, he's done, let's see, 17 books, and he's writing his 18th book, and he's not in a place to talk about it, but we're going to get a little bit of content on that in this show this is unlike most of the other shows that I do I never really touch on spirituality I never talk about enlightenment I never talk about a lot of those things this is going to demystify some of that stuff debunk a lot of that stuff so I'm really stoked to have Dan on here it's a great show it's a little bit deeper than usual but I kind of like it that way so enjoy this one with Dan Millman How, how often are you traveling now? I mean, you just came from Australia. Are you still all over the place all the time?
1: Um, not really. Sometimes I'm home for a few months. Work at the food co-op. Yeah. One day a month, you know, it's kind of. A, and I'm working on a new book, the third and final book in the Peaceful Warrior trilogy. So, that's what yeah. I'm doing a lot. What, what's the days. title? Is there a title yet? It's called the Hidden School. That's the title I have for it now. We'll probably keep it.
0: Oh, ah, good. Now you're at that point where the editor's not going to make you make a whole bunch of changes to, to oh, things like I, that. I
1: don't even know. They say if you ask an author too soon,
0: they'll either tell you too
1: much or too little about their book. And when I have a rough draft done, then I'm ready to talk about it. Got but it.
0: Hopefully it'll be a good sequel. Good for, you. good for you. So that would be book number... Oh, that'll be book number 18. 18, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Because yes. I read... I, I looked at Wikipedia, as I often do oh. before, because just to find something really scandalous to drop in the beginning of the show. Sure. But came up dry on, Sorry on yours. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, it's all right. Mm-hmm. I'll just make something up out of whole cloth. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to just to make you feel really old, the book that were The Peaceful Warrior came out like when I was born, basically, yes. 1980. 1980. And thing. before that, yeah. you were an awesome athlete. You probably still are a pretty awesome athlete, but you were a trampolinist, which I didn't know was a... Th- a genre of sports, really
1: yes, um it's now in the Olympics since two thousand, but I won the first world championship in London in nineteen sixty four uh, on trampoline. I was an all around gymnast and right, I coached yeah. at Stanford, but um, that was my best event, along with Florex. I won the national championships and blah blah blah.
0: got it yeah it's it's something that you probably I don't know how often you think about that stuff after you stopped coaching, but it's obviously you're keeping in pretty good shape now.
1: I still, you know, do a kind of a routine every morning and you know, a little handstands, handstand push-ups.
0: Hey, just a little just a couple handstand push-ups yeah. that most humans can't actually do. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Well. <laughs> Here and there. Why did you go from I'm like badass athlete to even bothering with the spirituality and the enlightenment stuff? Because honestly, it seems like a lot of work. Why bother with enlightenment no matter who you are?
1: <laughs> well, there were seeds probably looking back, there must have been seeds within me. I was disillusioned very quickly. I was experienced success as an athlete, doing okay as a college student, but something seemed missing, and many people don't feel that. Right right. They don't feel something missing. They're just striving toward whatever they're working toward. But for me, um, I guess I was focused on how to create talent for sports when I was a gymnast and coach, and those qualities like strength and suppleness and stamina, coordination, rhythm, timing, that sort of thing, And it seemed to me that talent was about 20% innate. Certain Mm -hmm. body types lend themselves to certain sports. But it seemed intuitively, and research has confirmed it since, but intuitively, talent what we call talent, the ability to learn faster and easier and rise to higher levels, could be developed if we develop those foundation qualities. And when I started coaching at Stanford University, I worked on those qualities rather than gymnastic skills. I worked on those fundamental elements of strength and so on with the team and improving their coordination and rhythm and timing, as well as the usual qualities. And the team went from the bottom of the conference to one of the top three teams in the nation in about three and a half years. I coached the top US Olympian as well. So I might have still been coaching, but I was going through some personal challenges and I realized that being able to do somersaults didn't necessarily help me when I went out on a date. Right, yeah. <laughs> or had children or got married, had financial challenges. So that's when my interest shifted from how to create talent for sports to what are those foundational qualities for talent for living, for the challenges we have everyday life, decision making, uh, standing in lines with patience. Right. Um detachment from thoughts and emotions in the sense where we're not driven by them and we can live a balanced life so that is the longer version but also when i shattered my right leg in a motorcycle crash that shook me up and i'm pointing up right now right and i started asking bigger questions about life so all those forces in my life shaped me to have an interest in life's bigger picture is the best way I can... I don't use, like to use the word spirituality very much, right. who knows what that is exactly.
0: Yeah, and also I feel like it, at this point it, it's almost credibility damaging because there's so many yahoos in that niche uh-huh. that are just cashing in on the new agey stuff that... Yeah. It's like the word self-help also is, is now completely tainted to the point where it's unusable by anybody with a shred of integrity for the most part. Yeah, I, I would agree.
1: Uh, the idea of new age is a miscellaneous drawer we have in our kitchens where you don't know where to put something, you throw it in there. Right. If it's not exactly philosophy or religion or psychology, you right. just throw it in. And there's so much magical thinking and wishful thinking that's um, just unrealistic in new age thought. So even though I was shelved in that, uh, that category because they didn't know where to put me, I kind of prefer um, life's bigger picture. You know, maybe you've heard that story about uh, self-help Somebody goes into a bookstore, talks to the information booth, and says, can you tell me where the self-help section is? And they go, if I did, it would, uh, yeah, moot point. Kind of be
0: self-defeating, yeah. Self-defeating. I definitely, (laughs) I understand that. I think it's very true, and and now, you, but you started so long ago that when you were doing this, there was no category for it. What other sort of even self-help, personal growth books were even around when you started writing about this stuff? Here's the irony.
1: Um, when my book came out, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I think Shakti Gawain's book, uh, Creative Visualizations, and a couple other books, they didn't know where to put them. And my publisher um, suggested they start a new category called New Age. Oh, wow. So I was one of the first books shelved in that category. Now I can write a novel, I can write a really grounded, realistic you know, book on uh, personal development, and it's just automatically shelved in many New Age sections. Yeah. Unless they have inspiration or the other categories. You ask yeah. the question, what books were around? Yeah. The original self-help teachers were people like Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, uh, uh, Chuang Su, Lao Tzu. They were, if we look back on their material, they're giving advice for living. So what we call modern uh, self-help is not new at all. These are ancient traditions of guidance for life, encouraging reminders of what people already know, but we tend to forget.
0: That's, of course, very true. And now there's sort of a resurgence of all that stuff as well. And you even had your teacher nicknamed him Socrates as well, the guy you met at the gas station. We'll Mm -hmm. get into that in a little bit. One thing I am curious about, though, is I I read in your bio that you were interested in martial arts as a kid. But when you were a kid, it was like 1950s and 60s. -hmm. What martial arts were around that? Because now it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's popular. There's Mixed martial arts, I mean, there's martial arts being created probably every week here in America, but back then, even in the 80s and 70s, if you did karate, it was like, what's that? Mm -hmm. Even the movies about karate were exotic back then.
1: Well, I think many uh, people during World War II were exposed to Japanese martial arts, particularly judo, for example. James Cagney was the first. American actor to portray some kind of judo-karate elements in a movie. I don't remember, but it was like in the early 50s, maybe okay. even late 40s. When I was a boy, up the street was a Nisei, you know, Japanese cultural center, and they did a judo exhibition one day, and my little nine-year-old eyes widened, and I said, I want to learn that. Right. I was small, and uh, I'd been bullied a bit, so like many young boys. For being small. For being small, yeah. yeah. So I gravitated toward learning that judo. Right. So I started around nine years old with judo and I later, um, on their original movie, Hawaii 50, they had a TV series. Ponce Ponce was a, a comedic character. He had a string of martial arts schools, karate schools. So when I was a kid, I also took some karate mm-hmm. later on, Okinawate, which is an right. Okinawan style. Um, and then I had a latency period after that when I did gymnastics for 10 years. So I did no martial arts though I sometimes joke that I have a six-degree black belt on the trampoline. Right, sure. Uh, but after, when I started coaching, then I gravitated. I tried Aikido, and I ended up getting a shodan. So now if I'm ever attacked on the street, I can whip out my certificate. You
0: know? Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can jump over the attacker, <laughs> talk and roll. And later I did other arts, such as Tai Chi
1: and some Kali Eskrima, arnis nice Filipino arts. I taught a, a knife-fighting training for 14 years, personal growth, Right. Personal development through knife fighting. So I've been involved in the arts. It's been a primary love of mine for most of my life.
0: It's almost a given, but people always say like, oh, you learn the martial arts because you learn to be peaceful and things like that. But can you detail that a little bit? Because usually when you ask people about this, they're like, yeah, you know, you learn how to fight so you don't have to. And it's like, well, a lot of the people that I know that learn martial arts learn martial arts because they're inherently either scared and or they definitely plan on using this against other people at some point.
1: I can only speak from my own experience and people I've known for years in the arts. And some of the most loving, open, peaceful people I know are very good martial artists. But they may go through a phase when, you know, young kids first learning, feeling his oats and first learning a martial art, they want to show their stuff and they feel uh, overconfident actually. Mm -hmm. You know, that brings us to the term peaceful warrior. It's like an oxymoron. How can you be peaceful and a warrior? Right. And I don't mean to distill the value of the idea of a warrior, Bushido in the Orient, you know, the, the warrior's way, uh, set of codes and valor and, and uh, virtue, uh, the deeper meaning of warrior. Uh, and of course, there are people who are literal warriors, uh, people who are soldiers, secret service, people who put themselves in harm's way, right. police. Sure. So I don't mean to dilute that term at all. But really, when I use the term, it, it acknowledges all of us as people seeking to live with a peaceful heart. But there are times in our lives, all of us, that we need a warrior spirit. It's not about fighting except maybe with the inner battles of self doubt, with insecurity and so on. But it's about standing up tall inside of ourselves. That balance, uh, that peaceful warrior is about living with our head in the clouds and our feet on the ground. So that's what I mean by the term, and it's all inclusive. Everyone I've seen is I would call a peaceful warrior in training.
0: Excellent. Yeah, it's it is a funny phenomenon. I started doing mixed martial arts back before anybody called it mixed martial arts. This is in, I want to say, 2002 or 2001. And it was just back then we just called it like basics or Kihon and Okinawate and kickboxing and stuff like that. But we had all these other things mixed in there, ground fighting and stuff. And we would learn with these guys that you now hear about on TV. Some of them who are still, well, I guess all of them are probably retired now. They only Now they run their gyms and make their videos and make their millions that way. Uh, But back then, I remember paying like 20 bucks to train with Ken Shamrock or something like that. I met Ken, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it was funny because the guys I was training with were all basically either gonna get a job and barely hold on to it or go to jail. And they were learning this, and the teacher was like this cranky, Okinawan-trained guy who had left Canada under mysterious sort of circumstances and was now the assistant to this lawyer who was also into the martial arts stuff, so he had some shady stuff going on. And I was like the normal guy, right? And we were all there, and these guys were all actually growing up in violent areas or living in violent areas or dealing with violence every day or worked in a violent occupation, some kind of doorman at a ghetto club or whatever, strip bar. And as soon as we started taking this, because we all started at kind of the same time, we built this dojo thing together with the mats, painted it, everything— And then everybody got their shit together, like, almost overnight, because it was like we learned some stuff, and we were like, wow, we are going to go out and totally get in trouble with this, and one guy did, and then he was gone forever, and then everybody else was like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, we would, like, spar and things like that, and you'd be like, wow, this is really powerful. This isn't the kind of thing you break out at the bar when you have a disagreement with a guy that you see every other day, because it just became too serious once you were good at it. Once you were strong enough, once you had the power, you were like, I don't need to showcase this all the time anymore. I found that really counterintuitive to my experience taking karate as a kid where it was like, you learned a cool move and you you threw everyone on the floor in fifth grade because you learned a cool trip or a throw because it was kind of not really powerful enough to do any kind of real damage at that point because you were learning the kid stuff. Once you got the adult stuff, it got real really fast, and even these inherently violent guys or, or guys that had a history of violence, they turned it down quite a bit, which I found really interesting, and it kind of parallels a little bit about what, you're, what I think you're talking about here, which is once you get there, you kind of don't need the, – the, it was about getting there in the first place. I know I just articulated that really poorly. I thought you did very well, uh, thank actually. Thank you. I appreciate uh,
1: it. I, and I mentioned two other arts that I've done more recently, which I think highly of, one is Sistema, uh, the Russian martial uh, yeah. art. Mm-hmm. I went to Moscow with Vladimir Vasilyev and, and cool. studied with his teacher, Mikhail Ryabko, and uh, did their summer training camp, which is just great. In different environments, you learn to move. Wow. And it, again, it's a, the idea of empowerment and personal development is being intermixed with martial arts today, where it's becoming a holistic training. Because even from the ancient traditions, in a sport, if you lose, you lose a point. You lose a match. Right. In martial arts, you can lose your life. That's mm-hmm. the lineage. So... Uh, there's always been a certain earnestness in the arts about training body, mind, spirit, kind of a holistic approach, which I've always liked in, the, in at least most of the arts. And Sistema is definitely a way of life as well. It's a really very interesting. One of the most interesting arts I've ever done. And the other is FAST defense. FAST stands for fear, adrenal stress training, recognizing that in real situations, if someone is attacked, their front brain goes mm. to sleep, they get tunnel vision, dry mouth, and only the high percentage shots that work for most people most of the time. So in FAST, people are taught boundary setting, conflict avoidance, verbal confrontation before they ever get into any actual uh, physical good. stuff. It's a terrific training. Um, it's fastdefense.com. I've been trained as an instructor in that too. That's
0: cool. Any type of psychology that comes into play with self-defense is perfect. We had Tony Blauer, who you probably also know. He came on a while back. And everybody was like, you got to ask him about this move and that move. And I, and what he came on and talked about was being the worst victim ever. And, w- like, you're getting mugged at the ATM and you just go, oh, my car doesn't work. These stupid things. I hate this. How am I going to get home now? I don't have anything. And the muggers are just like, oh, man, i got to mess with this guy. He's broke. <laughs> right. His car yeah. doesn't even work. Good he can't even get it. bus fare. <laughs> um, and it, I thought that was really fascinating because there was this guy who could probably rip people limb from limb without, you know, with one eye... Closed, and he's working on how to be a terrible victim so that nobody even bothers <laughs> with it. Um, yeah. So we're talking about the the enlightenment kind of deal, the spirituality, the word that we all hate, right? But you you went on this journey, and I asked you this sort of before when we were when I was having tea and everybody was <laughs> standing around talking in the kitchen, mm-hmm. aka our pre-interview about why is it that when Whenever we're talking about or detailing a journey, it's always analogized with travel, with going to an exotic location. Is that part necessary, or is that just kind of a device that people use because it seems more powerful than having the whole journey happen in your living room over a period of three years? Or does it enhance, does the travel enhance this because you're outside of everything that you know already?
1: Yeah, and I think you intuit the answer to that already. Whenever we travel, whether it's a new town or a new country, especially, and I just got back from Japan as right. we speak and, you know, Australia, everything is exotic. We'll go by and say, look, a laundromat. I mean, because it's new, it's different. That's true. And yeah. so it, it tends to wake us up. It tends to, our reticular activating system and our brainstem uh, sorts for new, n- not the habitual um, in our environment. There's survival value in that mm. in a primitive sense. So I think travel is that the analogy, the metaphor in our life for exploring new territory. It's a natural parallel, the idea of awakening. Of course, anyone can awaken in place, and there's the old wonderful cliche, wherever you go, here you are. You are. So uh, it's still you, but we change in different environments, and we wake up and pay attention in in ways we hadn't before. I mentioned that I taught for 14 years, training in self-awareness, self-knowledge, and personal development through knife fighting. Yeah. And and the learning really happened during the test. People walked off the street, most of them had never done a martial art, in three and a half days. Three people attacked them with steel knives, not sharp knives, nobody got killed. right? But they had to move without thinking. It's equivalent to six months to a year training in most schools. And we did it through a careful process of slow motion work and other ways we prepared people to move with knives skillfully and get offline and not get cut, but this tremendous moment of stress in terms of the attack and the test where they passed or failed um, before the whole group, that moment they had to open up at very deep levels to really learning and seeing their life pass before their eyes. So that was the purpose of that training, to get that moment of awareness and true learning. Because many times our sub- at the subconscious level, we're resistant to really learning. We say, oh yeah, I get it, I get it but we don't change. Right. But certain experiences can put us right up against it. So travel in a milder way does open us up to really um, getting deeper
0: lessons, I think. All right, guys. Back to the show. I would agree with that. I think I found that out by accident because I was so bored and restless in high school. I became an exchange student and then there I... I was expecting to find something, right? Like, I'm getting to Germany, this is where everything changes. And I was really angry and disappointed when my whole life didn't transform in the way that I wanted it to when I arrived. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, I'm going on all these trips while I'm here to Italy and the Netherlands, and they took us all over the place, and we did all this cool stuff. And that's when I was like, oh, for me, it's about going somewhere, and I'm not trying to be all deep here or whatever. Literally, it was about going somewhere the excitement, the anticipation, and then planning and then traveling and seeing everything on the way to the destination. And then when I got there, there would be like a period of, oh, this is so great, this is new. And then once I felt comfortable there, I sought that discomfort elsewhere. And now that I'm older, I'm fine being comfortable all the time. I think when I was younger, I didn't realize I needed to constantly push my own boundaries because I felt constrained. I just thought that I was hyperactive or, you know, not appreciating what I had as my, my parents thought, oh, you're, you're ungrateful. You live in this nice, safe area. We grew up in a not safe area. Why don't you just enjoy it? But that wasn't what I wanted as a kid. When you're young, like Cody here who helped us set this up, he's running around all over the place probably. And either physically or mentally or both. And I think a lot of people that listen to this are feeling that constriction, but they think we bet that down somehow, not necessarily just in America, but we feel like we've got to focus on other things or move in this certain direction when really, I think as a young guy, you just kind of want to do everything. And you should probably try to do as much of that as you can because I'll tell you, I hit 35. I'm not that old, but I am fine not leaving the house for a couple of days at a time and eating the same thing every day. But 10 years ago, I would never have stood for that. I would have been eating raw octopus if i had You to.
1: raised uh, several really important issues, I think, here. Let me see if I can grasp them Great. all. The first is it's not prescriptive necessarily. Like if you want to so quote unquote awaken, you have to travel. Right, and yet we all know that travel, young kids, it's worth a college education, going to different cultures and adapting and seeing the world and how people look at things differently from different angles. So that is valuable in itself, whether or not one is on a quote unquote spiritual journey. Right. The other thing is that analogy, the journey. You know, in the Peaceful Warrior movie, the character of Dan has a realization. He walks to this top of the hill with Socrates, the man who's his mentor, and he realizes, you know, that old thing, that it's the journey that makes us happy, not the destination. But fact remains, without a destination in mind, there is no journey. That's a good point. We just wander around. Right. So for our point A, it's good to have some goal, purpose, you know, in mind, a point B to move toward. That seems to be given, it's been said that the, the purpose of life is a life of purpose. Where where we are, we're moving towards something, getting something done in our lives. And that's very practical. So the journey is an analogy. I've raised the question among friends in late night discussions. If one person lives on a farm his or her whole life, and someone else travels the entire world, is the traveler reliving a richer life? I think the answer would be no, not necessarily. One can learn all that they need to learn, uh, studying nature and the cycles of nature and the animals on a farm. and So no one needs to do something other than what they're doing. Uh, There are riches to be found in travel. There are riches to be found paying attention to details right here at home where we are.
0: I think that's an important point because I I do get a lot of email from people that says, you know, I can't afford to travel, so I don't have the same advantages as you do. And I, I can't really argue with that because... I don't know what it's like to not have the same advantages that I do. Whereas, like someone will write, "You don't know what it's like to be a young black guy in Queens." You're, yeah, you're correct. I have no idea what that's like. However, I find it hard to believe that where you are now, it's impossible to get to some area that's equal or greater than where I, where you think I am right now, right? Yeah. And I think it's an an excuse process. Well, I don't have all the money in the world to travel. I don't know if that's necessary. In fact, people who complain about not being able to get an education, I spent a lot of time and money getting an education myself, went to law school, everything. If I had to do it over again, I would have been an assistant making copies, coffee, and running errands for somebody who's a super high performer just to be around them and get those mindsets and things like that, and that that opportunity is theoretically available to somebody with negative money because they pay you to do that job whereas I had to pay other people to teach me things that I'm not necessarily using right now because I'm no longer an attorney or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, seems like an interesting education. And yeah, you're right. Without it, there's no journey. Without the destination, there's no journey. However, you don't necessarily need to go to Japan and Australia to learn these things. Not
1: at all. Yeah. Not at all.
0: Although you do have some interesting travels, but I want to back up a little bit. You had the life-changing event. it. You shattered your leg. I think that... There's so much distraction in the initial event and like, oh, well, this guy, could he really jump on buildings and all these things that kind of probably don't matter necessarily. What after this event happened got you really interested in learning this stuff? Because it seems like if I were in your shoes at that moment, I probably would never have listened to this weird gas station attendant guy. And can you kind of fill in the story? Because I think a lot of people listening have no idea what the hell I'm talking about right (laughs) now. Sure. Yeah. For the many people who aren't familiar with the book
1: or, you know, the movie version. Mm Mm-hmm. I was a, a, a young collegiate gymnast at Berkeley uh, and things were going well in, in that field. And I'd walk by that service station, an old Texaco station on the corner of Oxford and Hearst in Berkeley, many times, uh, it was right on the corner of campus. And I'd actually met this old guy after I'd broken my leg, different from the story that I wrote. Um, and maybe that opened me up in some sense. But I walked into this station about three in the morning after a late night date. I was walking back to my boarding place and decided to go in on impulse, um, maybe get a snack and I met this cosmic old guy who wouldn't tell me his name, and but he reminded me for some reason it popped into my mind like the old Greek sage Socrates, and so I called him that. Now, I didn't spend as much time with him as I indicated in the book, but he became the archetypal teacher I mean. King Arthur had Merlin, and Frodo had Gandalf. I mean, it's been around a long time, the the mentor-student relationship. Castaneda's books, you know, he had Don Juan and so on. Um, So he became the archetypal teacher. And by the time I wrote the book 14 years later, I'd met other mentors, other teachers and influences in my life. So I contributed all I could through that relationship. So the book is based on a true story. It's autobiographical in nature. I wove fictional elements in, involved. Uh, could he really jump up on gas station roofs? No. Um, and even on my website Q and A, I right. make that clear. I haven't tried to, do, there's enough delusions in the new age, you know? Right. Yeah. I don't want to add to that. So it's a mixture. Uh, you know, Picasso said art is a lie that helps us to see the truth. I Love that quote. Yeah. It's a great quote. I use it whenever I lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, Isaac Bosch of a singer said, when I was young, they called me a liar. Now they called me a writer. Uh, yeah. So it can be said many ways. Um, but yes, I did shatter my leg in a motorcycle crash in about 40 pieces, the doctor oh, told me. Do you still have problems with it? Yeah. You know, my leg's a little shorter, that one, and, and it's externally rotated. Um, so there are some residual effects. But I was able to come back and uh, co-captain a team that we won our first national championships for Berkeley. So that was a real comeback story. That's all true. But I'm quick to acknowledge that even a badly broken leg is not the same thing as many soldiers coming back from war with brain injuries. I don't want to make it some big heroic thing, but it was a hard road to to go, you know.
0: Problems are always relative, right? Yeah, they're
1: all relative, sure. But it, it did serve my evolution. I might not be sitting here speaking with you if I hadn't had that happen. Right. But I don't recommend fractures as a method of spiritual. <laughs> no,
0: role. just, yeah, exactly. Knife fighting for personal growth, fine. Fractures for personal growth, <laughs> right. skip no. it wherever possible. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I have to ask, if he couldn't jump up on roofs and all those other things that were obviously fictional elements, why put it in there? What does it do? What does that device do? Because I'm, I'm not an English major, so whenever I see stuff like that, I always ask my, my friend Nick, He's a great writer. And I always go, Why the hell would you even do that? Like everyone just goes, Oh, this guy's full of crap now because this guy jumped on the roof. What's the point of having that in there at all?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have not lived or written strategically. You know, there are many trainings, you know, Mm. self help type trainings, plan uh, plan the work, then work the plan, all that stuff. I I just, that's not been my life. So I don't actually know why I did a lot of things I did, (laughs) certainly in terms of writing. I didn't plot it out and say, I'll have to have him jump up in the roof. Right, but it helped explain why the character came back again and again to the station. I see. Now there is a story about a wanderer in the woods millennia ago uh, who came across the Buddha walking through the serenely through the woods, and this wanderer was fascinated by this this figure. He didn't know who he was, but he finally approached the Buddha and said, "Are you some sort of wizard?" And the Buddha said, "No." And he said, "Well, well are you some kind of great warrior or uh, king?" And the Buddha said, "No." but what is it that makes you somehow different than anyone I've ever met? And the Buddha smiled and said, ah, he said, I'm awake. Mm. I couldn't tell that story exactly, but that's really what brought me back to that service station. This old guy, you know, who was a night mechanic, had something I didn't. I was this hotshot gymnast and Berkeley student, but he had something. I think it was a distance, a non-seriousness, a sense of humor, a relaxed way of moving, more like a cat. And I couldn't articulate what it was he had, but that's what interested me. But it was easier just to have him jump
0: up in a row. Right, yeah, exactly. Because saying all that, a yeah. guy like me, you'd have lost me <laughs> a gone. long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, who, who recommended this book again? Let's see if it holds up the left side of my TV right. more evenly. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay, that makes sense. I almost felt dumb asking that, but the thing is, I am not a guy for like deep metaphor. I don't do well with that stuff at all. You know, I'm the guy who goes, just explain the friggin' poem to me, or I'm not going to read another <laughs> sure. one. Sure. You know, and I think there's probably a lot of people like that. And again, one of the reasons I do this show is because a lot of the personal growth, self-help and new agey stuff, the stuff that even isn't BS is so kind of obfuscated in like, oh, it's got to be esoteric and it's got to be complex. Jordan, I, I,
1: I'm so glad you raised that because many, many times people will say, your book, Dan, "Way of the Peace Boy," was the first book I ever read. It woke me up. It started my interest in this whole realm. They sometimes add, "Of course, I'm reading much more sophisticated books now." And I go, "Oh, you mean you don't understand them?" They said, yeah, "Yeah, I can't understand them." Oh, it must be sophisticated then.
0: Right. That's that would be so insulting to hear, actually. But <laughs> but I'm sure you're over that after a while. Definitely. How, however, I do, I can relate to that as well, where people go, you know yeah, you know, I don't need your show anymore. I have everything that I want in my life. And I'm thinking, wow, I should either be really jealous that you just, you have everything, you have no more room to grow, or just feel more likely I feel really bad because if you can't see any room to grow, then that kind of makes me sad a little bit because it makes me feel like you're dead inside somehow. Uh, but I think you're onto something here, or you were onto something and you still are with the simplicity of it. Because if I can't understand it, It doesn't matter how sophisticated it is because it's not useful for me. And I'm one of those guys who thinks if I can't use this, then it's a paperweight. It could be a brick of gold that weighs 300 pounds, but if it's not useful for me, then I'm going to throw it away because it's That's like
1: my mission directive. Uh, When I was a young trampolinist and coach, uh, we would do clinics, and a friend of mine who was an engineer and also a good trampolinist, he came on first and talked about the moment of inertia and the radius of rotation, and these were kids listening And after he finished, they were going, wow, he's really smart, but I don't know what he was saying. And I got up and talked really simple terms, progression, step-by-step, start here, go to here. I didn't seem very smart, but they could really take that and use it. Yeah. And so simple is not easy to do.
0: It's brilliant, right? Who's that president that said, sorry for the length of this letter, I didn't have time to write a shorter one?
1: It's been attributed to Churchill and many other people. So,
0: because simplicity is really the key, and that's what we're striving for at Art of Charm as well. People will write in and go, well, you didn't talk about this concept and that concept, and it's like, but can you apply the three things we did talk about? Well, yeah, those were great. Right. Good. I don't want to overwhelm people, and I appreciate you doing the same. If you overwhelm people with the science behind why something is working and this hormone and this receptor attaches to this, people are going, where, what where do I can, do with it? Yeah, what do I do with it? Where, where do I plug it in? Right, exactly. And if it doesn't plug in, it gets discarded. And the same thing goes with any kind of spirituality or focus technique or martial arts i mean i can't tell you more than the basic stuff that i learned from martial arts years ago because we drilled the hell out of those but that was the idea because you don't need the triple sal cow roundhouse kick to do what you need to do you need the, the straight punch and that's pretty in the front kick and you're good You're you're all set <laughs> or Sistema, which terrifies me, by the way, because anything Russians do somehow is scary. I don't, <laughs> and maybe it's a Cold War thing that I've got programmed in the back of my head, but whenever you see those guys, I just imagine going to train with them and ha- them leaving me like in the snow for a week or something, and then being like, all right, now you can start your training.
1: Well, yeah, it, it's rigorous training, and yet there, I found no macho, tough guys. Interesting. Doing, they, they're tough, but they are not warlike. Really, it's, not that kind of art. It's, in fact, I haven't seen an art, a martial art that emphasizes relaxation and breathing more than that one.
0: All right, back to the show. That's kind of the opposite of what I figured because uh and I've experienced this a little bit myself when you see the the big Russian guys, the really strong guys it's really scary and intimidating. And whenever you see the guys who teach things like Sistema, they're like small Russian Jewish guys. They're five foot five and they're wiry and they probably weigh like 112 pounds. There's something about them that looks like they've seen it all. Mm -hmm. And guess they probably have. And that level of kind of presence is very intimidating if you don't really know what what they're going to do with it you know but it is very it's kind of interesting to see too to develop that i wouldn't even know the first thing
1: by the way i'm still hanging on to a, a quote you know it's been a hobby of mine since i was very young collecting quotations so i tend to be of an encyclopedia
0: sure as a writer you, you you should right that's kind of a prereq
1: well i think it was an ancient chinese proverb i don't know who, who it was attributed to but they said only the supremely wise and ignorant do not change but I wanted to just get that out. Yeah,
0: get it out. I feel like writing and creating anything like me with this show has kind of a, been a process of me getting things out of my system as well, because I'll get an idea, and then I go, I think about it for a while, and it drives me up the freaking wall if I don't record it. Just get it down. It's yeah. gotta happen, and, and I even started a, this, this new thing, Fan Mail Fridays, where I read listener questions, All is right. mostly an excuse for me to get ideas that, I, that are given to me by my fans, thank you guys, and girls, out of my head, because otherwise I'm gonna go friggin' insane. Yeah. And writing is probably very similar, I would imagine. Ray Bradbury said, writing consists of two phases, throwing up and cleaning up. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I can Sometimes you have to get it out there.
0: Yeah, I I can understand that, and then you gotta turn it into something somebody else wants to consume. (laughs) Right. So, you had the teacher, Socrates, and you went back, and what did you learn from him? Like, what did you take from him that we can then use? Is there something we can take away from that? Obviously we'll link to the book in the show notes, but.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. It's huge.
0: I realize I'm putting you on the spot because
1: I, I'm not a specialist in one area. Some people build themselves as relationship coaches, financial coaches, health and wellness, fitness coaches. Yeah. Um,
0: you're all over the place, but
1: I guess it's congealed around ideas, not original to me. It, many people have talked about it, but about. Mindfulness and living in the present moment. Now I know mindfulness has become a
0: buzzword. It is. It's very trendy.
1: In, in Australia, they they introduced me as a mindfulness expert, and I said my wife might beg to differ yeah. after she sees me do the dishes. <laughs> but I have been. I'm pretty good at explaining things in a way that sounds makes common sense or uncommon sense, as you will. So living in the present, focusing more on what's in front of us and what's real, because you know past and future are j- either imagination or memory. True.
0: Right. And they're all processed through this. Your emotional Oh, our garbage. associations, our baggage, our right.
1: projections, everything else. There's a, another quote. Uh, Barbara Rasp said, the lesson is simple, the student is complicated. You know, to, attached to that, Mark Twain said, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. That's part of the complications right. of our own minds. Uh, past and future, imagined problems, remembered problems. So one of the central teachings in The Way of the Peace Warrior is about uh, this approach to living in the present. But there are many other lessons in the book. I, sure. I don't have them categorized. Yeah. Obviously, in my seminars, I talk about various aspects, how we deal with fear and self-doubt, one central aspect of the warrior's way. And one, I think, core element is about action. It's an outside-in approach to spiritual growth because most of us, I'm like a deprogrammer at times. Yeah, Most people have grown up in a culture either psychological or, quote-unquote, spiritual culture, where we assume to live well, we first have to somehow fix our insides and have positive thoughts or no thoughts.
0: Yes, or, exactly. Or we have
1: to have the right feelings of compassion and love and happiness and peace and confidence. And my approach is quite different, and many people don't get that. It's different from many New Age-type teachings sure. where it focuses on what needs to be done right now because we have more control by our will over what we do, than what emotions pop into our awareness, so oh, the thoughts pass. Through sure,
0: yeah, that's very interesting. I think you're absolutely correct because whenever I meet somebody who's very kind of new agey, they're always like, you know, you need to be compassionate, you need to do, this. and it's like somebody saying, "Hey, Dan, this is great. Can you be taller? And we need exactly. you to, like a few shades darker, <laughs> skin wise. Can yeah. you also ten years younger would be awesome? So great, let great. us know when you're on that, and uh, then we'll go from there. Exactly. Great analogy. I, yeah. It's like telling me to be somebody who I'm not. Oh,
1: so. there's more than that. I ask often audiences in my talks, raise your hand if you've read a book on the power of positive thinking. <laughs> all the hands go up. Right. Then I say, keep your hands high if you've only had positive thoughts for, say, the last two <laughs> weeks. All the hands go down. And I say, yes, but you believed if you'd read the book twice, if you'd highlighted it and done all the exercises. In other words, these idealistic teachings, people blame themselves. They say, I didn't do it right. That therefore, that's why it doesn't work mm-hmm. when they read something like crazy, like the secret, you know, that right. if you just intend it and focus on it, it, will magically appear in your life. People think, well, it didn't. I, I tell people if it works for you, by all Super. means, keep doing it. But when it doesn't, people uh, think, well, it was my fault. And mm-hmm. I say, maybe it's just idealistic notions.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Like maybe you can intend on having that Ferrari in the driveway or whatever all you want. But if it doesn't materialize, you can beat yourself up. However, who is that serving other than the person who's going to sell you the fix yeah. to when that happens? The horse
1: I'm betting on is effort over time. And if we look <laughs> back on our lives, yeah. that's how we've accomplished what we have.
0: I think that's, uh, that's very wise. And it makes me feel a hell of a lot better because otherwise I have to change everything about myself in order to get some result that other people claim to have already a- achieved.
1: And as you pointed out, things we can't change, like getting shorter or you know, taller, that sort of thing. Right. Um, So I think it's important for us to start where we are and a certain level of self-acceptance we can grow from there because judgments only hold the patterns in place.
0: Exactly. And uh, although I will say with the future projection stuff, worrying absolutely works because 98% of the stuff I worry about never happens. So obviously worrying is working great for me. (laughs) Um, Do you have something that you want to give the audience like, like practical exercise, something that they can work on, that they can look at or do? Is there anything that you have or want to talk about that we didn't talk about?
1: Well, let me underscore, because it's a huge statement, uh, the idea that we have more control over our actions than we do our thoughts and feelings. Many people may hear that and go, well, I don't think so. Because sure, yeah. we've all grown up with the idea that all we have to do is just think less negative thoughts um, or, or feel this way or that. So let me make a more provocative statement. I'm not suggesting that people feel kind, courageous, happy, peaceful, loving. I'm only suggesting they behave that way. And when people hear that, they go, wait a minute, you're saying feel one way and behave another? That sounds hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Aren't we supposed to be true to our feelings? But hey, anybody can relate to the idea that they felt afraid, but they behaved courageously anyway. Sure.
0: That's probably how you met your wife. (laughs) (laughs) That's how most of us meet our our significant other, actually. (laughs)
1: Well, yes. Um, and one can feel shy and go ask someone to go out. Sure. And, or be afraid of public speaking and do that. A friend of mine is terrified of flying and he flies thousands of miles a year. Ugh. He said, I discovered it's not that people don't fly because they're afraid to fly. They don't fly because they don't buy a ticket. Right, and they don't right. walk down the gangplank and fasten their seat belts. Right. So we can feel one thing and acknowledge what we're feeling. But we can still behave in a way that transcends. We're not driven by our feelings or our thoughts. And it gives a sense of liberation. I mean, that's what meditation is all about. You know, I don't put meditation up on a pedestal. It can be a, quite a useful exercise. So can push-ups. If you do push-ups over time, predictably, you get stronger with a progressive you know, routine of push-ups. And if you meditate over time and just sit quietly in a good posture, not leaning forward into the future or backward into mm-hmm. the past, But stably in the present moment, you watch what arises, but you don't react to it. You just sit, which is not so easy.
0: No, it's very difficult, and it's infinitely frustrating for somebody like (laughs) me who has a tough enough time sitting still, even when I'm not trying to not think about something. Or, I mean, there there's so much going on up here. Mm -hmm. Not not even like interesting stuff, just stuff, you know. And every time I try to meditate, and I meditated all through high school, it basically got me through high school. It would be the hardest thing in the world to get rid of, oh, I've got to do that homework. Oh, you know what? After this, I need to write this down because if I don't, I'm going to lose it. And I would keep a notebook there, and that was the worst thing ever because then I was just writing things down. And one time I sat until I didn't have anything else to write down, and all of those thoughts calmed. And it took like four hours, and it was brutal, It was really, really hard. And it took, I mean, that was Saturday afternoon. So I thought, crap, was all this just going to come back the next time I sit down? It got easier, but it took a really long time. I mean, it took like three years. Wow. Well,
1: even three years, that's some really sincere practice to do that. And again, people misunderstand. They think they sit down to meditate. They're supposed to have a clear mind, no thoughts. Um, And it's the whole idea is just as push ups help you get stronger if you sit and meditate properly. You end up getting this more distance. You start seeing the illusory nature of thoughts. They're a subjective reality, but they have nothing to do essentially with what's going on around us. So that can bring on a sense of a more serene or peaceful approach to life. You get some liberation from the tyranny of the thoughts. I got to do this. got to do that. And past and future. So there is some benefits to doing that. The only, the primary difference between meditation and push-ups is you can't pretend to do push-ups.
0: That's very true. And, but you sure as hell can sit there and think about your grocery list and look like you're meditating. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's very interesting. The concept that we talk about at the art of charm, and maybe this is in line with what you're saying, and maybe it's way in left field. We say the mind follows the body the body follows the mind, right? So if you do force yourself to act in the face of fear, sometimes not all the time, you'll stop being afraid of those things because of the feedback that comes with, well, gee, every time I do this, it's fine
1: another quote customado boxing coach once said heroes and cowards feel exactly the same fear they just respond differently
0: absolutely yeah that i never knew where that came from that's brilliant um, and it makes total sense that it came from a boxing coach because most of us are generally afraid of getting punched in the face yeah uh, or elsewhere for that matter yeah
1: yeah uh, somebody came up to me after a, a workshop pr- lecture i gave once and said Wow, I kind of feel inspired. I said, don't worry, it'll pass.
0: It'll pass, yeah. Because
1: motivation comes and goes. And I like the idea of of those leveling out the highs and lows. In fact, the most interesting definition of enlightenment I ever heard was a state of mind and body where you alternate from the heights of ecstasy to the depths of despair at the speed of light.
0: Oh, I see, right.
1: Um, So eventually those things, yeah, settle down into kind of a more uh, even keel.
0: Oh, you know what? I have a final question for you. Why bother helping other people after you got all this knowledge? Why, why, why don't you just keep it for yourself? It seems like a really personal journey. And then, you know, what was the point of saying, I need to teach this to other people. What, what, what caused you to do that?
1: Wow. That's a great, uh, great question. One of my books lists these 12 arenas of everyday life that comprise what we call personal development like discovering our worth, which is very different from self-esteem, mm-hmm. reclaiming our will, energizing our body, managing our money, taming our mind. It goes on. But the last of those areas, really they're courses in the school of life we have to pass to graduate mm-hmm. that free our attention uh, in life is serve your world. Because eventually, you know, that's why Groundhog Day is one of my all-time favorite films. It's all about service. And I won't go into the movie plotting for those who haven't seen it. But yeah, good movie though. The point is, No matter how much money someone has, no matter how much they travel, no matter how many options, possessions they have, all those self-directed things and experiences can't touch the quality of experience of just raising someone's day, a kind word, because it makes an innate connection between those other parts of ourselves. We forget we're all in this together. And so it's not just some holier than thou thing to do or because it's good for us, Mm -hmm. or because we're supposed to. But eventually we discover it's the only game in town, is connecting with other people. Because people say they want to be happy, whatever they want in life. What's behind that want tends to be, I believe that will make me feel good more of the time, and bad less of the time. Right. But behind all that, I think even more than happiness, we want a sense of purpose, meaning, and direction in our lives, that our lives count for something. And I think we're all seeking that to make our lives worthwhile, to form a useful purpose. I think that's what it's all about, um, making a difference. That's what I felt, I think, wanting to share my story with other people. Albert Schweitzer, close my Mm -hmm. contribution, said, in influencing other people, example is not the main thing, it's the only thing. And so, ultimately, the way we serve is by being a good example and making our life something. And other people do notice, they do notice
0: our lives. Thank you very much you're welcome. All right. I hope you enjoyed that one. Like I said, a little bit deeper than usual, but I'm digging it. I really enjoyed our conversation. Dan is very, very friendly and just a loving guy. He's here in person. You know, I do a lot of these shows on Skype. You can feel it. He's super calm. He's super present. He's super focused. It's really great. And he's in damn good shape for a guy who's 69 years old. So I got to give him all that. Show feedback and guest suggestions. This show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. And in fact, this was set up by a listener who I invited into the studio to come hang out with Dan and I while we'd recorded. We rely on you to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let us know. I'm Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Bootcamp details at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. And remember to subscribe to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Alternately, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. And our iPhone app now has a separate section just for the toolbox episodes that we have all the fundamentals in. So that's kind of cool. If you don't want to sift through that stuff, it's right in the app in a separate tab. You guys can also help us subscribe in iTunes, give us a five-star rating, write something nice, and I'll love you forever. And when you write a review, it not only makes me feel proud, but it helps keep us up in the ranks so that other people who can use this information can find the show more easily to get the credible advice that they need. It's also the best way to support the show other than purchasing products and training from us. Special thanks to Cody and the Jasons for their help in production of this episode of the Art of Charm podcast. And tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now have a great week, and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to the Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at the Art of Charm Podcast.com.